Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode three of Kip on Learning. I'm your host, Dave Levin. And with each episode, we'll be sharing insights, inspiration, and challenges from across the Kip network. Today, we're talking higher ed. Much is being made right now of the ways in which higher ed is changing and needs to change because of COVID-19. And yet, parts of higher ed were changing rapidly before the COVID-19 crisis, particularly to better meet the needs of first-gen, low-income students. Today's conversation is going to focus on both of these topics, and we've got two amazing guests and some special surprise wisdom sprinkled in. At KIPP, our mission is about working together with families and communities to create joyful, academically excellent schools that prepare students with the skills and confidence to pursue the path they choose, college, career, and beyond. Our hope is that by doing this, our alums can lead fulfilling lives and build a more just world. Prior to the COVID-19 crisis, much of our efforts to improve the experience and outcomes of our students after high school were focused around three main priorities. First, while they are still in our schools, we need to maximize the quality of our high school experience for each and every Kipster. Second, we need to embrace the idea of career for all, because this strengthens the outcome for all kids on all pathways. The conventional wisdom that higher ed and career are two separate paths is flawed. We need to understand that post-secondary education and career are the double helix of life after high school. And finally, number three, we need to find scalable, sustainable college and career support models. One of the things you'll hear today is that while much has changed as a result of COVID-19, these priorities remain as true as ever. In fact, even more so. Within each of these priorities, there are countless specifics, but there are four that I wanna highlight that I believe our guests will also touch on. First, the importance of a sense of belonging as a key driver of college and career success. Second, the essential role of holistic and effective advising. Third, the critical need to reduce financial strain. Four, how career-connected learning is evolving. All right, let's get to it. At KIPP, we have 98 college partnerships across the country. Among the most impactful of these are the ones we have with eight historically black colleges and universities. Our students who attend HBCUs persist and complete at higher rates than their peers at predominantly white institutions. And they report a higher sense of belonging and satisfaction with their college experience. Joining us today is David Page, Vice President of Enrollment Management at Dillard University, one of our partner institutions, and Ashwa Helton, KIPP's National Director of our KIPP Through College program. On the next episode of the podcast, we'll be joined by Aaron Trent Johnson, CEO and founder of Community Equity Partners and the senior advisor for the Equity Lab. And Kira Mitchell, chair of the NAACP National Youth Work Committee for a conversation on systemic racism and injustice against the black community that is at the root of the national protest and how Gen Z has been an incredible force in mobilizing and organizing protests across the country. Welcome, David. Welcome, Ashwa. We are so excited to hear from you, and thanks for being here. David, let's start with you. So 
There was a lot of change happening before COVID-19, and I know Dillard's on the forefront of some of this. And so how, in your perspective, how are the most forward-thinking colleges evolving and changing before this crisis to meet the needs of first-gen students from marginalized communities? Well, thanks, Dave, for having me, first of all. I want to give a great thanks to Kip for inviting me today, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. I think a lot of, not a lot, but there have been several campuses that have been forward-thinking in their quest to ensure that students, particularly students from marginalized communities, are successful on their campuses. I think what COVID did, however, was expose some areas in which some of us may not have perhaps thought about and some areas that we all took for granted. And so I think the universities or the campuses that have been most successful already had in place practices and policies that were student-centered and that allowed students to be successful both inside and outside of the classroom. For example, at Dillard, you know, this is not our first rodeo with a national disaster, unfortunately. And so some of the things that we learned for Katrina carried over into what we had to experience with COVID. And so while some campuses had the opportunity to prepare to move to an online environment, because of our academic calendar, we already had passed the midpoint of the semester and already taken spring break. So what the plan was to work through the scenarios and what had to be done over a matter of a couple of days, but because of how COVID just kind of springboarded and took off, those couple of days turned into a 12 to 24 hour period. So one day students and teachers were in the classroom face-to-face and the next day they were in an online environment and our students were having to, those who lived on campus, which is about 75%, were faced with being asked to move off campus. And so thanks to our online learning mechanism, Canvas, which was already in place, they had to do obviously some learning for our faculty, but that happened immediately and things ran in hindsight relatively smooth. Obviously going through it, there were some issues and I'm sure faculty and students spoke to that, but I think now everyone realizes that we kind of made it through that okay, if you will. I'm just kind of waiting to see how we're going to address fall 20 as relates to the online environment. Those are such great reflections, David. I think similarly, we have seen since we have students at so many hundreds of schools across the country, there was a variety of response when students had to respond to university policies and how they responded to the pandemic. It was some of our more forward-thinking campuses like Georgia State University, which grapples with a ton of diversity, both from international students as well as being in the top 10 for ethnic diversity in public universities, had a number of accommodations already built in for students who are from more rural communities, students who have, who for whom home is international, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So we're pleased to see some of their response. Arizona State is one of the forward-looking universities that we partner with. They already have an on-ramp credit 
access program where a student, even before COVID, for $400 could take a course online of a 20 course sort of selection among freshman and sophomore year courses. And if they don't complete the course or if they didn't get the grade they would want, they don't have to pay for the course and they don't have to transcript. And so having that kind of opportunity already in place is a partnership we're now able to leverage to help with our students for whom it was impossible to replicate a full spring semester course load online as they would have if they were on campus because of family considerations, working, financial issues, no longer being on financial aid and having meal plan, et cetera. A lot of our students have to work and we're not able to replicate that kind of course load. So Arizona State having a credit acquisition policy has been really helpful. This pandemic is going to expose the spectrum of responsiveness in general in higher ed. We had students who were turned out who are foster students, who are homeless and had literally no way to get home. We had to start an emergency fund just to help our young people get home. To your point, David, get internet access, sometimes get devices as well, as well as small things in the grand scheme of things, but big things in young people's lives like recovering their work study salary and how they utilize that money for their day-to-day -day lives and now are finding themselves back home with no jobs. So this responsiveness and the, the universities that are able to, like you mentioned, David, turn to online learning, make it engaging across lines of difference, accommodate it for different learning styles and range of ability, and also provide academic support that is approachable so that students feel a sense of, of belonging and don't suffer from imposter syndrome or fear of accessing those resources in order to become you know, successful, competitive in that class or in that year of study are going to be the ones that make it. And I suspect that there are going to be a ton of schools and unfortunately some of our smaller less resource less endowed schools some of which are black colleges will be at risk of closure if we can't make this pivot so i am hoping that there's national support i'm hoping that partnerships and organizations like kip and others can band together to keep education options open because this is definitely going to change the landscape i totally agree totally you know, both of you, you know, touched on this and thank you for the wisdom you bring into this topic. Both of you sort of touched on this interplay between how institutions were evolving before to help students feel like they belong and thrive regardless of any challenges they face. What do you think the impact will be on institutions that were resistant to this change beforehand? I mean, you know, one can't help, you know, recent news about the, the California system, you know, potentially dropping SAT and ACT. How are institutions going to change to be more welcoming to all kids going forward? If they are. <laughs> I think, well, they're going to have to change. Point blank. If they want to be here for the next 150 years or whatever the case is, you're going to have to realize today, if not yesterday, that it's not business as usual. We are not going to be able to go back to our quote unquote sense of normalcy and how we used to do things. We are all going to have to adapt. This entire world is going to have to adapt to new practices and new ways of delivering 
a product and higher ed is no different. And like my colleague said, I think some people that we can look out to help us in that regard are the Arizona states and the, the Georgia states of the world because they have done some remarkable things. And the cool thing about it is they're not willing to just keep them all to themselves. They're willing to share what they have learned and what they are creating and invite others along. The problem will be for those institutions who are so stuck on tradition that they're not going to want to evolve into this new higher education phenomenon that is about to take place over the next five to 10 years. And so either you're going to get on the train and ride, or you are going to be one of the uh, individuals who the train will run over. And I, unfortunately, for some of our institutions and some of our smaller HBCUs, unfortunately, I think that's going to be them because we are so stuck in tradition that we don't understand that you can maintain tradition while still be an evolving entity and a viable part of your community of where you are. And so that's going to be the challenge for us moving forward to just realize that. And I think when we realize that, then I think that will be half the battle of trying to get to where we need to be uh, for the communities in which we serve. I completely agree. And the role that universities that have figured some things out have in reaching out is going to be critical because there's actually, as you know, David, a wealth of knowledge that black colleges have that mainstream universities can take advantage of. For instance, as an undergraduate at Clark Atlanta University, having an orientation guide who stuck with me all year, who is, that's a black college, so it's my affinity group, but universities that have that same program where the messenger and the support is a student who is like them is critical and yet is not replicated on many campuses. And so as we move into a digital context and to think about who is it that a student would go to lab, virtual lab with, it's going to be someone who looks like them. They're not going to hang out with their professor online, having been online for hours and hours, bottoms tired, world moving around them as they have to like look at this screen potentially not at home, potentially in a Wi-Fi space like you mentioned, but taking advantage of peer leadership and, and accessing upperclassmen who are really knowledgeable and or have a lot of domain knowledge in a course is going to be critical. And so I am worried that, to your point about tradition, the tradition of higher education being so competitive conceptually right? But not a marketplace competitive, right? Not competitive like how business and other industries have to evolve because it's a market. Instead, competition in like sports way, right? That right. We won't reach across lines, right? We will not reach out to those smaller schools that are in our backyard um, and even within regions and states. And so I really want to see state governments get involved with consortia and pulling together, especially states that have both a large state systems and black colleges to get together you know that's a struggle even in the state of georgia there are not many consortia that bring together the four hbcus alongside or in the metro atlanta area alongside the larger state schools across the state so i think there's a big role for state government to play in convening and pushing resource sharing and also those who figured something out have to not just make it available not just be willing to share but proactively reaching out and saying like hey, do you have this? Is there a way that we can, you know, train the trainer? Right, right. 
Yeah, I think it's an opportunity. Call me a, a crazy optimistic person, but you know, as a small institution, and I, and I share this with Dr. Kimbrough, we've been talking about this for a while now. You know, obviously we want to increase enrollment, and I get that. But I think COVID will allow us to really shine the light on campuses like Dillard that are small and like Clark that are relatively small. That will allow us to continue what you said earlier, which is something that I think is very critical, particularly now for the class that's entering in fall 20, fall 21 and 22. We still have to maintain that sense of family and social connectedness. And so when you have, if we have the opportunity to go back to a physical campus, yes, it will be different and it needs to be different. But I think it's so critical that our young students are able to, in some capacity, practicing social distance, whatever, how we deem that necessary, have the ability to connect with someone in person for brief moments in time so that they can connect with that individual that will allow a relationship to be built that will carry them through their next academic year and work as their mentor the same way it did during orientation when you know we were, we were in, under the traditional setting. There's a middle ground. I also want to uplift the role that data is going to need to play in this context. We are going to have to be sharp and diagnostic in looking at these online classes, how mm -hmm. many students are showing up, who missed even two sessions, and mobilize. It's going to be really important that we push on data systems, and I know it's wonky, it's not sexy, but it is actually necessary in an online context to provide the sense of belonging and to make sure students don't slip through the cracks. And so this is a, an area where we need to bridge the cultural divide between what is perceived to be sort of white or disconnected or dispassionate and, and data from the sense of belonging and understand that one fuels the other, especially in an online environment. So it's gonna be a real push. And similarly, professors are gonna have to change and universities are gonna have to push professors you know, their lab assistant needs to be their leader. Their lab assistant knows how to get a 20-year-old, a 19-year-old to respond to something online. They do not. And so we have to really push on our professors to utilize their TAs and utilize the resources and become real students of the game or else they are going to be a barrier to student success if they think they can just teach a webinar like they were going to teach their lecture and have it land the same way across every student. Thank you for that. I guess before we get to the next question, we have some more 2020 graduates in the KIPP network who are experiencing this transition firsthand that were kind enough to share and discuss how they feel right now. So let, let's hear from them. Hi, my name is Matajane Tickle. I'm an alum at KIPP West Philadelphia Preparatory Charter School, and I'll be attending Drexel University in the fall. Some feelings that I'm having as I think about going to college is nervousness and eagerness at the same time. I'm a bit nervous because I know this is a new step for me and I know that I'll be somewhat alone and independent at the same time. I don't know how I feel about, you know, just starting a new journey and not having people behind me and looking over me at all times. Um, but I'm also motivated for the experience and knowledge that'll come. 
my way with being a new college student. I am Sasha Rooley from Kip New Orleans Schools. I attended Kimberly College Prep and Kip Renaissance High School, and I graduated from the Jackson State University. The type of support I need right now to help me transition out of college is encouragement for grad school. Knowing I've applied for an advanced degree and got accepted to Tulane University School of Social Work means a lot to me. I've accomplished undergrad with ease because I learned to navigate my way through, but grad school is different. I want to be able to enter Tulane's master's program with the right mindset. Now, I know I'll find a solution to a problem if I need to because that's who I am. But I want to step into my future with the boldness I carry and the confidence in myself. Hi, my name is Juanifa Williams, and I am a senior at Kip Du Bois Collegiate Academy in Philadelphia. In the fall, I am attending the restaurant school at Warner College to the Business of Culinary Arts. Because I am attending a culinary art school, I have been thinking a lot about how my classes will operate if we can't be together in person with the instructors in the kitchen. Culinary arts is a very hands-on learning experience, and I do not know if this experience will quite be the same if we were in a virtual setting. Additionally, right now I am working towards saving for tuition and paying for my uniform and my toolkit. Because the culinary and restaurant world is so dependent on local businesses and the economy, I worry I won't be able to launch my career, and I wonder if some of those items would be needed or if I would get the full experience of college education if we are still on lockdown. You know, David, you touched on this previously, and I'd like to build from there a little bit. So we're entering graduation season, and we're hearing from 2020 graduates on both sides, you know, people who are graduating from high school, uh, and then and then college graduates. And and what have you been hearing on both ends? You know, prospective students to Dillard, Ashua from across the KIPP network, rising seniors who are thinking about college or thinking about career paths. And what are we hearing from those kids? And what are we hearing from the college graduates about the type of supports they need as they take their next steps? So for us, our high school students, kind of more so like our continuing students, are very excited to get to campus. What I think COVID also did was strain some relationships in the house between mom and dad and the students. And so I think our young people are excited to get away, to get to college. Trust me, my nine, my nine and 11 year old, they're not college age yet, but they're looking to get out of the house as quick oh. as they can, man. I mean, like what is early decision? Yeah, right. So, same here. Same here with my two. So I, I think that, you know, daily we get inquiries from our prospective students, our de deposited young people who are asking, you know, what's the plan? What's the plan? And so I think the excitement is still there. I think, obviously, there is some apprehension, particularly for those who are really paying attention to what's going on here in New Orleans. So we have to deal with that as well. But we have a great communication plan and messaging is going to be key around all of that. I do think it's important, though, that we do some assessments in the summer, more so than normal, to ensure that the young people are coming to campus prepared to be successful in the environment in which they're going to walk into, because it's going to have some online aspect to it. And so that's, uh, for our high school students, that's what's been on their minds and what we've been working with them from. As far as our graduates, the young people that just graduated May 9th, 
a lot of them went into situations where their potential or their places of employment perhaps maybe changed their mind about moving forward with them. And so we've had to deal with a lot of anxiety around that space. And our career services department has done a phenomenal job of working with those young people to either go for a plan B or just dealing with stress and space that they've been in because of that uncertainty. I wish that all of the universities that our KIPsters are seeking to matriculate to were as proactive and as focused on communication and some of the other factors that you talked about. It's been a range of experiences. Uh, We are actually expecting to see quite a bit of melt of, as you know, David, the phenomenon and Dave, the phenomenon of students who are admitted to a university but fail to enroll. And so we are really worried about a melt into a general associate's degree program. We love community college. That is a wonderful support system. The, The rigor and quality varies across states, but it's definitely a wonderful option. But our students are most successful when they're in a program that leads to a credential that is stackable and that leads to a career pathway that has escalation. And general ed associates sometimes don't have the right counseling and support. And we are worried that a ton of our students are going to slide into from the four-year out-of-state option that they were admitted to into their local community college, which may not be prepared for them, which may not have a program in their career aspiration, and that they might end up just, quote, taking a couple of classes to to try to move forward and then they will attrite. So the, the high school class of 20, I think is at great risk. That said, I think the college class of 20 is at even greater risk. And I don't know how it's been to try to do career counseling and advising for your grad, your graduating seniors, David, but the across the country, you know, support really varies for strong first jobs. Already 40% of Americans are working who have college degrees are working in jobs that don't require college degrees. So there's already 40% underemployment in America, more egregious for students of color and young professionals of color. So we are really focused on how can we do career connections? How can we leverage our boards, our funders, our local partners? What can we do in the next 90 to 120 days for the college class of 20? As you know, it's a social capital network, who you know, environment in the best of times and in times of scarcity and austerity like we have now, it's going to be triple that, right? And and folks will feel no compunction about giving the opportunity to the most resource, the most connected young person, because that could be their, their child, their nephew, their niece, their, you know, best friend's son. And so we are really going to have to get creative and to not assume that the college class of 2020 is going to be able to secure a strong first job in this era of 25% unemployment and up to 40% for young people under 24 as in normal times. You know, our young people are asking more than ever, you know, what is on the other side of my education? How will it allow me and my family to have a fulfilling life and to have paths of choice. And so this career connected learning, which was growing before, I, you know, I think will only grow more. And I'm curious to hear from both of you what you're seeing and what you're hearing about that. I can start. It's critical and I am really happy. I've been with the KIPP team for the last year and I am really happy that this 
notion of career and alumni success as the ultimate goal instead of college for college's sake has taken root and is really a big part of how we're trying to evolve the work of Kip Through College and uh, likely to become Kip Through College and career. It's a big hurdle, right? We have been working, David, with our young people. Still, a bachelor's degree is the most stable, the best option, the most likely to put you on a trajectory for career success, for economic self-sufficiency, if you will, economic independence, financial independence. And yet, it's not the pathway for every young person. It's not the pathway because our public schools, which the vast majority of our young people attend, KIPP included, are still reaching for 100% college readiness upon high school graduation, but we have not attained that for every student. So that choice is not present for every student just yet. Some students are in prohibitive higher education environments that are too expensive, too far away from home, and that they have other personal obligations that do not allow them to go to school full time. And then there are lots of careers that in the 21st century are not best attained through a four-year degree. And so with all of the changes and where K-12 needs to meet our young people for, Dave, as you said, true lives of choice, uh, we have got to be more both accepting of the idea that students might take nonlinear pathways, but also aggressive to make sure that we walk alongside our young people so that they actually graduate. They graduate from whatever that post-secondary education option is that gets them to their career aspiration. Agree. I'll just say agree to that. I can't. I could not say that any better. The only other comment I would make regarding that converse of this conversation would be also the combating that we are having to do on the on the higher ed side with the notion that a a college degree is is possibly not worth it given the finances behind it. Because we still have quite, when I do college fairs and high school visits and things of that nature, that conversation still comes up, unfortunately. It, it is so true, David. And I think we have a collective responsibility to make it not a matter of a financial choice. And I think that is part of what, you know, we need, you know, and Ashwa touched on this. We need the federal government, we need state government, and we need institutions of higher ed to recognize that having kids at the age of 18 or 19 and having them and their families have to make this choice based on financial strain and stress continues to perpetuate the inequities we see in our society. And so I think without that financial strain, kids who are prepared are going to embrace the idea of college. And yet so many families have such financial strain right now that it leads to them asking this question that you're constantly hearing, David, and that we're hearing, when in reality, you know, achieving that degree in the long run affords kids more financial opportunities. And yet at 18 or 19, they, it's sometimes harder to see. David, Ashwa, thank you so much for joining us today. It was, you know, wonderful uh, hearing from you and, and look forward to, to hearing more. And David, please extend our gratitude to everyone at Dillard. We, we are deeply grateful and, and love our partnership with you. Thank you. Thank you both. I appreciate it. Great to be with you both. Today, I want to close our podcast by reflecting a little bit about what our alums shared. We heard from Kwanifa and her journey to culinary arts school. 
We heard from Sasha, who's graduating from Jackson State and heading on to Tulane to study social work. And we heard from Atajane, who is nervous and excited about beginning her journey at Drexel. And the themes they shared, the financial stress and strain of post-secondary life, of wanting to make sure that they belong, that they feel a part of the institutions and the careers that they are choosing, and that they are getting the right type of advising and counseling and support. And underlining it all, that their next steps are preparing them for paths that they're choosing, for fulfilling lives, and to make a more just world. And we heard from David and Ashua about how higher ed and career-connected learning are meeting young people, both pre-COVID and now as a result of this crisis. Hopefully, this moment in time is where K-12, higher ed, and employers come together and recognize that our young people need us to change. Our young people need us to break down the walls that have separated K-12 from higher ed and higher ed from career. Our young people need us to recognize that there are common themes that lead to success post high school. Thank you so much for listening today to the KIPP on Learning podcast. If you liked it, please subscribe to get alerted about new episodes. And please visit our website at kip.org for more information about how we are embracing the challenges and opportunities of post-secondary life. Thank you.